The studies show clearly that people who get consistently less than six hours per night, or strangely consistently more than nine hours per night, that's when all these chronic diseases start to kick in. But interestingly, it's not just the quantity of sleep, but it's the timing as well. Welcome to the Eat, Live and Move podcast by Miyagi, a space where we bring you the latest science-backed conversations, expert insights and practical tips relating to all things health and wellness. Hello, I'm Dr. Gina Cleo, your personal habit change expert. And I'm Dr. Ross Walker, a cardiologist and preventative health expert. Together with our 60 plus years of collective experience, mostly thanks to Ross, we're on a mission to help you to improve your health and transform your habits so that you can eat, live and move better one episode at a time without the fluff or the fads. Today's episode is all about the thing that we spend a third of our lives doing, and I'm not talking about scrolling on our phones, I am talking about sleep. And I must say, I'm so glad that we're dedicating an entire episode on this topic because there is so much information to cover on this topic. Like we hear that sleep is so important, but we're going to unpack why, what to do with sleep, how do we sleep more, how much do we actually need, what happens when we don't get enough, etc., etc. According to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the number of people annually who experience a sleep disorder is like 30% of the adult population, or the 70 million people. That blows my mind, Ross. Well, it's just in mind. America. That's it's just in people America. In America. So Ooh. it is about 30, 30% of the population suffer insomnia, but all adult males suffer a degree of sleep apnea, and all postmenopausal females suffer a degree of sleep apnea. And you can still get sleep apnea as a child or as a premenopausal female. Yeah, right. Well, look, you know, I'm jet lagged at the moment. I was in Amsterdam and I am home now and I'm very sleep deprived because I was only there for seven days. So I was jet lagged the whole time I was there. And then just in time when I got onto Amsterdam time, I'm now home and jet lagged here. And I can tell you that I've been acutely aware of how the lack of sleep has impacted my cognitive capacity, my emotional capacity, my eating. So we'll touch on all of those things. I'm sure I'll be in tears unpacking myself. But we are going to cover the basics of sleep, why we need it, what are the benefits, how much sleep we actually need. We're going to explore the five stages of sleep. And as always, we're going to share some really practical tips on how you can improve your sleep and set healthy habits. I am so passionate about sleep because I never used to prioritize sleep. You know, when you're young, you're kind of just like going out with your friends. You never really notice the time. You just do whatever. But I started noticing even, for example, one glass of wine impacts my sleep. And then I feel gross the next day. And so now I'm asleep. Like my friends call me crazy by how much I have to get to sleep. Like we'll be hanging out and I'm like, guys, I got to get home. I got to get home for bedtime <laughs> because I know the impact that it has on my life if I don't get enough of it consistently. So Ross, let's start with the basics around sleep because I think we all know that sleep is really important for our survival and also for our health and our well-being. But why is it that we actually need to sleep? Like what is happening in our body when we are sleeping? Yeah, there's a whole lot of things at, at many levels. It, it's not just a physical level, it's a, it's a mental level, it's an emotional level. And, and I think that there's so many aspects to it. So firstly, 
It, it's just to restore your body. I mean, it's obviously to restore and to recover from what's happened to you in the 24 hours beforehand. So it's it's really important that we get the designated time of sleep, which we'll talk about in a second, just to, just to repair and maintain various body functions, tissue growth, muscle recovery, immune support, hormones. It, it's just so crucial for that aspect of things. And also one big deal and a lot of people don't know about this, but we have a thing called the glymphatic system, which is the immune system in the brain. So at night time, the cleaners go into the big buildings in the city when the staff aren't there to clean the building. And it's exactly the same thing happens when you go to sleep. The immune system just says, oh, good, there's, uh, we're, we're going to rest mode. We can go in now and do a lot of our repair, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to get good quality sleep to allow that good repair. And one of the reasons why, as you get older, your sleep gets more fragmented. And so therefore, you're not getting the same degree of brain repair. And one of, one of the things we think contributes to things like cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's as you get older. Wow, that is, I mean, that in itself is a lot. If, if you, when you're talking about, I didn't actually realize that there was this sort of like cleaning toxin thing going on. So is that happening in a body or in our brains? Well, it's happening all throughout the body, but because of, uh, the, the brain receives 20% of our blood supply for obvious reasons, and so we, we need to keep that brain very healthy, and one of the ways of keeping it healthy is to get that good quality sleep. But also, it, it's, it's not just to keep the brain healthy in that regard. Having good quality sleep is really good for memory and learning as well. So if, you, if you've got an exam the next day, for example, you, you read it just before you go to sleep because the sleep then consolidates those memories. It, it's, so, it's extraordinary what sleep does. And so many people say, oh, it's a bit of a waste of time. I've got to cut back on my sleep. No, no, and more no. Who are these people? I would never, ever cut back on my sleep. No, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> Do you think sleeping gets harder as we age, Ross, or is it just like a hormonal thing? Oh, no, or is, there's, it, there's, is that anecdotally just my experience? Look, there's no doubt. I, I'm in my 60s. When I was in my 30s and 40s, I used to sleep like a top, go to bed, wake up in oh, the morning. Yeah. I wake up at the end of every sleep cycle and go back to sleep, but I'll explain oh. sleep cycles in a, in a second. But okay. yeah, so, so, so it does, sleep does get more fragmented as you get older. As you get older. Okay. Yeah. I've noticed as well since, you know, having jet lag and not sleeping very well the last, uh, I guess, 10 days, I would say. My emotions, I've had to really work quite hard on regulating my emotions. Like when something happens that's generally like triggering or upsetting for me, I've noticed I have to really hold myself and regulate myself more, or it's probably annoyed me more than it normally would. And I know it's completely because I'm a grizzly bear when I haven't had enough sleep. So what is happening? Ross, what's happening in my body? <laughs> well, w what's happening is your brain chemicals have been mucked around by the jet lag. And it's, it's really interesting. There's a condition called endogenous depression. Now, people think they go to the doctor, they can't stand their partner, their kids are on drugs, they hate their job. And they, they, they say, I'm depressed, doctor. No, you're suffering grief. That's a different issue. Endogenous depression is a biochemical disorder of the brain that's associated with reduced levels of serotonin in the brain, 90% of which is made, of course, in the gut. That's why it's, it's another topic for another uh, podcast is the gut microbiome. But when you are depressed uh, with true chemical or endogenous depression, the, the three cardinal symptoms are you're tired during the day, you lose interest in things, 
And the other one is you wake up at two in the morning staring at the ceiling for an hour. You can't get back to sleep. So there's a lot of emotional regulation that comes with good sleep as well. Oh, gosh. I am totally feeling that. I am really looking forward to getting good sleep the rest of this week. Okay, you mentioned gut. So I know that sleep's also really important for our metabolism and our energy balance. And, you know, the hormones that are related to hunger and satiety, the ones that keep us full or make us hungry, like leptin and ghrelin, are very much influenced by sleep. And I know that on the days that I don't sleep as well, like the nights before, I feel like I'm a hungry bear the whole day. I just, I want quick acting carbohydrates. I have less resilience to saying no to things. And I mean, you're going to be seeing me snacking on cereal all day long. You know that I love snacking on random cereal. Yeah, I know. You've got the cereal offender. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but you see, that's the point. The point, when you get poor quality sleep, there's a much stronger link to a whole lot of metabolic disorders such as type 2 diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, et cetera. So yet another way that sleep's important. And I also mentioned before the effects on the immune system of getting poor quality sleep. Yeah. So when you have good quality sleep, you, you get much better immune function. We've got these things. We heard, heard about this all through COVID, this cytokine storm where people get very sick with COVID. Well, cytokines are really important chemicals when they're regulated properly, and sleep helps you regulate these cytokines properly. And so a lack of sleep, your immune system gets shot to pieces, yeah. marked increased risk for things like infections and illnesses. Yeah, makes so much sense. You know, one of the things that I hate the most about not getting a very good night's sleep is I wake up the next day, yes, tired and hungry and all of that, but I find that I don't want to exercise. I don't want to move my body. I feel really lazy and I just want to sit on the couch and play Tetris on my phone all day, <laughs> which I don't, well, I don't, but that's what I would want to I do. I think you explained to me that there is a thing called Tetris, but I still oh. don't understand it. But that, that aside- like, can we believe see, everybody at home that Dr. Ross Walker does not know what Tetris is? I no mean, idea. Tetris don't, has got uh, me through on. my thirties. <laughs> don't know, don't care. Um, Wait, so, okay. Anyway, have you heard of Mario Kart? At least tell me you've heard of Mario Kart. I've heard of it, and I think I've seen my grandchildren play it. But let's let's get back to sleep. <laughs> this is much more okay, interesting talking to about sleep. video games. <laughs> so, <laughs> I say quite often in my professional talks that the quality of your day depends on the quality of your sleep the night before. And I think yeah, it's, so it's, true. it really can impact on so many aspects, yeah. including your physical well-being. Yeah. That is honestly, all of that is so fascinating. I think similar to resistance training, getting enough sleep, if we could put that in a pill, like getting all the benefits of sleep, putting in a pill, we would be multi-billionaires, I reckon. So, okay, we've talked about like sleep, lack of sleep. But let's say you've had just a couple of crappy nights sleep versus you're a chronic sleep-deprived person. You know, what's the direct impact of not getting enough sleep if it's just a couple of nights in a row? Well, even then, it, it can still have an effect on your thinking. So there have been a number of studies done where they've looked at people, they've, they've on purpose deprived them of sleep. And their ability to perform cognitive functions, memory tests, learning tests have been completely shot to pieces is by that, that lack ethical? of sleep. Is that kind of testing ethical? Oh, I know, of course it's ethical because people are people are being paid to be part of the research and they don't Sounds mind. Sounds like torture. They no, also use that as a torture strategy in the war, you know. Oh, of course, of course. But 
these people realise they're just going to be sleep deprived for a few nights and do, do these tests, they get get back to normal after that. And God, again, you'd have to pay me human, a lot of money. I know, but the human body is very resilient. Now, come on, you've just come back from Amsterdam. I know. And, I was so, like the entire time there, and yeah, now I'm home the entire yeah. time here. Like, it sucks. I'm not yeah, happy about it. But you chose to go. So, I it mean, was my best knowing, friend's wedding. I had to I, be I, there. I, un- I understand that, but you knew that there would possibly have these, have these effects. And, and so, the, as, as, as we can see from Gina's behavior, everybody, <laughs> it can affect your mood. <laughs> I'm just erratic. <laughs> increased irritability, mood swings, high risk of developing mood disorders. Whoa, depression, are you saying anxiety. I'm moody? Are you no, 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 me no, moody, no, Ross? not in the slightest. No. <laughs> you're glad that you're on the other side of the screen. That's all I'm going to say. I'm very glad. So, <laughs> and, and, okay. And, yeah, and so your hormones get shot to pieces by all this stuff as well, okay. as we mentioned what about before. If it's, what about if it's chronic? <laughs> Like lack of sleep, like you were saying, yep. you know, postmenopausal women can really struggle with this, and so as, I, I as think you mentioned men like over 50. men over fifty. Yes, I was getting yep. to that. Don't worry, it's all about equality here. So, yeah. what happens when it's sort of a chronic situation? Then it becomes uh, a strong link to many chronic illnesses as well, and and that, and that includes we've spoken about cognitive impairment, but people who are chronically poor sleepers have much higher rates of Alzheimer's disease because of the effects on their neurocognition. Have much higher, you mentioned before, the effects on appetite, satiety, eating, etc. Much higher rates of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, as we mentioned, obesity-related cancers. There are so many things that are associated with bad sleep. Wow. You know what blows my mind about this is I, there's so much, I guess there's so many patterns now where people are sleep procrastinating. They're putting off sleep because they're doing other things, whether it's social media or they're Netflixing or whatever it might be, right? There's actually research now that's coming out of like big name journals like Nature and others that are labeled the impacts of sleep procrastination. And I feel like if you had all these benefits listed out in front of someone, say it was on their television and they had to say, yes, I'm willing to sacrifice all these benefits to keep watching this show. You wouldn't do it. You would not tick that term and condition because nothing can be worth all of that, all of those sacrifices. Yeah. So, Ross, then how much sleep, you know, should we be getting a night? We hear it's sort of seven to nine hours. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, yeah, some, some are around there. But the studies show clearly that people who get consistently less than six hours per night walk, or strangely consistently more than nine hours per night, that's when all these chronic diseases start to kick in. But interestingly, it's not just the, quali- the, the quantity of sleep, but it's the timing as well. So there's a new, there's a new uh, term, sleep regularity, and that's going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time in the morning, and, and your sleep regularity should be within about an hour of each. So you should really go to bed around the same time in in terms, of, you don't have to go to bed exactly ten o'clock and wake up at exactly six o'clock, but you should go to bed say somewhere between ten to eleven and wake up between six to seven, and, and make sure that is consistent rather than do it. So a lot of people they get up early during the week, but they say oh, I'm sleeping in on the weekend, and they think that's a good thing to do. But the research shows that sleep irregularity has even a much higher rate in death rates, cardiovascular disease, cancers, then does sleep duration. So I think it's important to look at that as well. 
What's interesting about that as well is I was reading a systematic review recently that looked at all the things that we can do to help us sleep better. You know, there's all these sleep hygiene tips and it was uh, looking at objectively how much it actually improved our sleep, you know, each sleep hygiene item individually. Well, it showed that the sleep regularity, going to bed and waking up at similar times of day was the number one most successful thing for getting a good night's sleep. And and it comes back to habits and routines. Now, you said go to bed between 10 and 11. My goodness, Ross, I'm in bed by 8.30. If it's oh, any good. later, is yeah. this going to be a problem? But I'm also very much a morning person. I'm up before five most days. No, but can I make the point there where well, you just said that? 70% of people are genetically primed to be larks, which is go to bed early, wake up early. That's how they work. But 30% are genetically primed to be night owls, go to bed late, wake up late. And that's why you've got to have your life styled around your your genetic sleep uh, sleep uh, abilities. And, and that's exact. So you're somebody who likes to go to bed early, wake up early. That's terrific for you. And that's what you should do. Are you more so of a night owl? No, 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 no. I'm I'm much more of a morning a lark, person. Whereas my wife is a night owl. Oh, that's she a would challenge. Much, she, well, she would much prefer to sleep in. Yeah. Whereas I'm 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 up six seven every morning, and uh, and I I can't do anything about that. So I go to bed about tenish. What's your opinion about people changing their body clock or their the you know it's changing from being a morning person to a night owl? Because you mentioned it's genetic. Yeah, you can't you can't actually do it. Uh, I mean, I'm sure some people do. But a lot of people will, will be chronically sleep deprived if they try and do that. And and for the poor night night owls, which is 30% of people, our society's geared around larks because we start work at nine, we finish at five. That's the standard working working day. So it means you've got to be up six or six or seven to commute to work to be there on time. In our Whereas Western the, world anyway, like yeah, in yeah, Europe in the or parts of Asia, you know, they start at 10, 12 during the day yeah, and go of course, till yeah. late. Yeah, which is yeah, why yeah. I live in Australia and Queensland, yeah. actually, where it's very bright first thing in the morning. That's my kind yeah. of lifestyle. Okay, so, Ross, we touched on that there's five sleep cycles. Can you tell us a bit more about these sleep cycles? What are they? Why Why do we care about yeah. them? Well, yeah, there's a, there's we, we should be getting four to six cycles per night to get good quality sleep so you wake up feeling refreshed and have a good day. But within each cycle, there are five stages. And those stages, the first one is what we call the hypnagogic stage. And that's when you lie down, you're awake, but you're feeling a bit tired, so you're going off to sleep. And you might wake up 15, 20 minutes later, look at the clock, and you go, where did that go? And often at the end of the hypnagogic stage, you twitch a bit. Yes, and I twitch. It's so yeah, weird. Yeah. No, that's just, that's just what happens in the hypnagogic stage. But that... It's really just the starting phase to get your body ready for sleep. Then there's a transition phase that doesn't do much, but that just takes you into the deeper phases, the the non-REM sleep, where you get into a much deeper phase of sleep, and that's when your body starts to rejuvenate itself and get the rest that you actually need. So after so the twitching part? Oh, the, well, 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 after the twitching part. <laughs> okay. So if, if you don't get that good quality non-REM sleep when you're not dreaming, your body's very relaxed, your whole systems are shut down and repairing themselves, then you don't feel well the next day. And if it's chronic, then you get all the chronic diseases we spoke about. And then just before you wake up, you go into REM sleep, which is when you dream. And that's why we always dream just before we wake up. Yes. That's so, so interesting. It, yeah. do, you ever, do you ever remember your dreams? Are you, you know how some people have colorful dreams and some people don't? 
Are you a colourful dreams guy? Yeah, I'm a colourful dreams guy. I had a really weird dream last night. I won't go through it, but it was a really weird dream and I've still got it in my head. But interestingly, if now you- Now I want to know about it, but I also oh, don't. No, don't no, tell you us. Don't, you don't, no, okay, it's, it's no, just don't too, tell us. It's too complex and nutty. Oh, then we don't want to- Write that well, in your diary my, for your my therapist. Dreams are, yeah, my dreams are <laughs> wacko. I don't want to go into into talking about them, but, <laughs> but what I'm saying is I'm a very vivid dreamer. Mm. And, and if you really want to remember your dreams- You've almost got to take notes when you wake. I didn't do it this morning, but you've got to take notes when you wake up. Otherwise, you forget them very, very quickly. Yeah, I get that too. Yeah. Or someone will be saying something in the morning and I'm like, oh, I had a dream about that or this came up for me. Okay. So sleep is obviously, sleep quality is really important and sleep quantity or the hours of sleep, super important for that, you know, feeling restful and having that wakefulness in the morning, not getting up and feeling like you can't get out of bed unless you've had injections of coffee straight into your veins. So you can sleep for an adequate number of hours, but still experience that poor quality sleep, right? If we're frequently waking up during the night, experiencing that restlessness or not progressing through those various sleep stages that you spoke about, Ross. So how do we know if we're getting enough sleep? How do we know if the sleep that we're getting actually is quality or not? Okay, well, the, the the most important question I ask my patients all the time about their sleep is when you wake up in the morning, do you feel refreshed or do you feel that you need a couple of extra hours sleep? If you don't feel refreshed when you wake up in the morning, you don't feel you can get out of bed and start your day, then you have a sleep issue. It may be just pure insomnia. It could be sleep apnea. It could be restless leg syndrome. Uh, periodic leg movements there's a whole lot of different things that you could have but it's that big question is that how do you feel when you wake up and and things like if you're not recalling or thinking that you're not dreaming uh, that's probably an issue as well so people who have good dream recall vivid dreams uh, it's indicated they've also had very good REM sleep before that and Look, this is, as I said to you, I wake up at the end of every sleep cycle now in my life. So every 90 minutes I'm awake, I look at the clock and I say, ah, it's 90 minutes later, I go back to sleep. But I still get very good quality sleep within each sleep, sleep cycle. So although I prefer not to wake up, it doesn't really worry me that much because I feel refreshed when I wake up in the morning. Okay, interesting. And you haven't always woken up in these 90-minute cycles, right? You said this is something that happened later in your life. When I hit 50 and the hormones went south, which they do in men and women, that's when it started to happen. And it hasn't got any better. I can't tell you the last time I went to bed and woke up in the morning with no disruption, without, without any wake up. Wow. Why do you think you look at the clock? Because I know that sleep experts recommend not looking at oh, the clock. Oh, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. <laughs> I, I just, just, Don't I listen to Dr. My- Ross. Do no, not don't listen to look me. At the don't, clock do not when you look wake at the up. clock. <laughs> Silly thing to do. <laughs> but for you, it's like, oh, yeah, 90 minutes because you know you're going to get back to sleep pretty easily. Because yeah, some yeah, people as well yeah. wake up and they don't get back to sleep very quickly. That's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So you want so to be able to drop the, back. The key thing, key point, as I said, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And yeah. I feel fine okay. to quote the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, being the habit expert, I figured that I should dive into some really practical things that we can do to improve our sleep quality so that we can have better health. The first, there's five R's for optimal sleep and they are routine, relaxed, reduced temperature, ready in the dark and relationship. So routine 
and relaxed go hand in hand. And it's all about creating that bedtime routine that signals to our brain that it's time to unwind. I've actually got a little sleep alarm on my phone. It, it does this like little ding, 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 like noise. It's not like that. It's much nicer than what I just did. But that signals to me that it's bedtime. And when I hear that, all my devices are turned off and I start to wind down. I don't have any, like, not, not, no more water or tea or anything because I don't want to have like a full bladder. And yeah, and then I'm just like heading into bed and starting my, I guess, ritual. So I go to bed and I wake up at similar times each night and really being consistent with that is important. And tips to help to, I guess, relax during that time. Sometimes I read. Yeah, can I make a point there? Yeah, of course. When people read, you've got to make sure what you're reading. So I could give anyone any of my medical journals, I'll be asleep in five seconds. (laughs) But don't don't read some exciting spice thriller page turner. Excuse me, because if you do, you're going to be all hyped up. No, totally. I read poetry. (laughs) Oh, that would put anyone to sleep. Oh, (laughs) and more gives me like warm fuzzies. And then I'm like, oh, that was so nice. And then I sit with it and then I'm asleep. I sleep a minute later. Okay. (laughs) I can also, yeah. It's also good to have some sort of non-caffeine based warm drink. And also I say to people to have a... um, to have something like meditation or relaxation tapes just to, yeah, to get you in. I want to now tell you a funny story. Oh, gosh. Mm. Oh, gosh. About lovemaking. So I've I've been doing radio for 25 years, and, and I was doing radio one night, and I was talking about the benefits of sleep, things you should do for sl- before sleep, things you shouldn't do before sleep. And I said, one of the things you shouldn't do before sleep is go exercising. You shouldn't go for a three or 4K run in the hour or so before sleep because it, it heats up your body temperature. So anyhow, I'm doing radio this night and a caller calls in Susan and says to me, um, Doctor, you talk about exercising before sleep, but what about lovemaking? Isn't that a form of exercise? And I said, I said, Susan, that's a very good question. I said, it is a form of exercise, but it releases completely different chemicals into the brain that you don't get when you're actually increasing your body temperature with a run. So lovemaking is a very good thing to do before sleep. So anyhow... She said, thank you, doctor. My husband will be very happy to hear that answer. So anyhow, I'm driving home. And every time I drive home from a radio segment, I always give my wife a call just to say hello. I'm on the way home. And she said, what did you think of Susan? I said, she seemed like a nice lady. She said to me, it was me, you idiot. No <laughs> and way. She just, yes. And she, and she disguised her voice. <sighs> and I said to her, I said to her, well, at least I gave the right answer. Yes. <laughs> so, that's why she said my husband's going to be so happy. She knew. Her husband was, was very happy with her husband's response. Oh, that's response. hilarious. Your wife's so name is obviously not Susan, is it? No, my oh, wife's I name is Oh, I love how sneaky she is. That's She's so hilarious. sneaky. Oh, I She's love an, that. And do you know what? <laughs> She's been putting up with me now for nearly 50 years. We've been oh. married for 40, 46 years already. I can't wait to meet there her and shake her hand and be like, well done you. I have to put well, up she, with this man one day a week and that she, is more than she, enough. So. She, she gets she gets regular <laughs> counselling, I can tell you. I bet she does. She, now, she you, does. Mentioned temp- you mentioned body temperature. Yeah. And what's really interesting is some people think that they need to have like a cold shower or a cold bath before bed because the idea is to reduce our temperature but actually the opposite is true when you have a warm bath or a warm shower during the hour before sleep your body actually then works to reduce your core temperature down which is why it's a really good idea to have a, a just a, a warm shower before bed 
And then make sure that your bedroom is nice and cool. You don't want it to be too hot in there. Heat impacts our sleep. Well, and we all we all know during heat waves, if you don't have air conditioning or a fan, you just can't sleep. It's just impossible because your body temperature is so hot. Oh, I hate sleeping when it's hot. Yeah, I can't do it. And the other thing is to make sure that you it's nice and dark. Your room is really nice and dark. I've got some blackout curtains. I also wear earplugs because I live on acreage. So there are so many birds, possums, all sorts of things outside. So I wear earplugs, which really helps. The other thing I do is I've got these no blue light little lantern lamp things. They are awesome. I've got one for reading. I've got one like in the, on the bedside table for my husband and I. And we're just about to change the ones in our bathroom, the light bulbs, so that they are no blue light. They're so much fun. They are, they're not very expensive. They don't impact the melatonin production. So essentially the, the issue with having light, especially blue light just before bed, is that it suppresses melatonin reduction, melatonin production. Yeah, and melatonin is the hormone that helps you get to sleep. So when you look at screens, you're actually telling your body and your brain, it's the middle of the day, so you're not going to start that wind down routine which is why having no blue light globes is perfect for that. You can still have enough light to see what you're doing to get ready for bed, but you are not, you know, suppressing that melatonin production. And also, you mentioned your husband, I mentioned my wife. Relationships are really important. Don't have a screaming argument with your partner before you go to bed because you ain't (laughs) going to sleep. Exactly. Or having stimulating conversations as well, like an hour before, right? Like, don't do it an hour before. I personally find I can't have too much to drink before bed, so I I really do try to cut out fluids at least two hours before. Also, if I've had a heavy meal, we don't want to be having heavy meals before bed because that also impacts our sleep. And any stimulants, no stimulants. So like you mentioned, exercise, Ross, there's also caffeine and nicotine. Yeah, but you you also mentioned you don't want too much to drink before you go to sleep you're just talking generally fluid yeah but a lot of people think alcohol is a sleeping pill alcohol might sedate you a bit but it completely screws those sleep cycles we mentioned so it disrupts your sleep so much so please anyone who's drinking more than the the recommended less than three drinks a day and and i don't think we should be doing anything more than that it's if you have more than that consistently your sleep cycles are going to be completely disrupted by it Mm. and i think listen to your body honestly for me if i have one glass of wine i will look at my fitbit which tells me sort of the cycles of sleep that i've been in that night my REM sleep is like gone. I don't know where it goes, but it's somewhere in the wine, glass of wine because it's consistently when I have alcohol, I don't get very good restful sleep. And that's just one, one glass. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, we had a, a, a episode about this anyhow, limit screen time. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Now, one of the best things you can do for your sleep cycle, this may come as a surprise, is actually getting bright lights into your eyes first thing in the morning. As soon as you wake up, getting that bright light that I'm talking about sunshine, natural light as much as possible. Don't wear your sunglasses. You're not looking directly at the sun. You're just getting outside for 10 to 30 minutes. As soon as you wake up can really help to regulate your circadian rhythm or your body clock. And it creates that cycle of now it's time to wake up and it can really energize you for the day. Absolutely. And and look, 
the, the other thing is the quality of your day will determine the quality of your night as well. So it's important to eat good quality food, not wire your brain with this processed package muck masquerading as food or it's important to have a regular exercise habit and of course manage your stress levels. Yeah, absolutely. Ross, let's say we do all the things. Let's say we do all the right things to help manage our sleep, but we're still struggling with insomnia. Or say shift workers, you know, people that are in certain like medical industries or like shift workers. What like what's your stance say on melatonin or even sleeping pills? Yeah, well, let, let me f- first say that I have a slide that I present in my professional talks. As I give talks on sleep and talks on stress management, one of the slides says, look, insomnia is very common. Don't lose any sleep over it. Let me say that there are times when I think these things are very necessary. So you're experiencing some degree of jet lag. You've just come back from overseas and you're get, having a degree of jet lag. I try to, I, I've got what I call my jet lag cure. So I, I basically always take melatonin into the time zone I'm, I'm traveling in, and I, I can't sleep on planes, so I sedate myself very heavily on a plane. So I, in the time zone I'm going into, and I do the same thing on the way back for a few nights to reset my biologic clock back to where it should be. And being somebody who is one in, in the 30% of people who does have a degree of insomnia. So insomnia is defined as having difficulty getting off to sleep or and or waking up in the middle of the night and have, then having difficulty getting back to sleep. And occasionally I suffer that. And okay, So I do have a, su- a supply of sleeping pills at home that I will use occasionally on the nights where I just can't get to sleep, which is, is probably once, once every two or three weeks. And I don't think there is anything wrong with doing that because the real problem is poor sleep not occasionally taking a sleeping pill. But I don't think anyone should be using this stuff every night or on a consistent basis because it will will have a long-term effect. But my two go-to sleeping pills I do give for people who are really struggling, which have an evidence base as being sleeping pills, not sedatives. So sedatives are things like temazepam, which is the go-to sleeping pill, which is actually a sedative, not a sleeping pill. And there's been all this stuff about Stillnox, which uh, Stillnox has, has fallen into disrepute because of people having some bad reactions to Stillnox. But there's a drug called Zoplicone, which is a bit like Stillnox, um, otherwise known as Imovane, 7.5 milligrams. I suggest to people to take a half at night before they go to bed on the nights they're really struggling, something I use myself. And there's another one, which has only come out very recently, called Suvorexant which is an aroxin inhibitor. And that's been shown in, a, in a, a very interesting study, actually, of people around their 40s who were insomniacs. And they gave them... Now, this is a pretty intensive study. They gave them suvorexid over a few nights, and they actually monitored in their spinal fluid, which I think is pretty intensive stuff, the, the amount of amyloid proteins being produced. So amyloid proteins, as you know, are associated with Alzheimer's disease. And they found that Suvorexid act- actually blocked the production of amyloid proteins rather than promoted it, which is what bad sleep does. And that's one of the things that happens in Alzheimer's disease. So, so again, I, I, I will use and will suggest to my patients this Soplicone or this Suvorexid, but I say to them, use it sparingly, do not do it every night. And I'm not against some of the natural sleeping pills on the, on the market 
things that, that might have, say, Sisyphus or Valerian. Bit of ashwagandha. Yeah, ashwagandha, th- things like that, which I don't think hurt either. So th- there are things you can do, and I still think the big message I want to give to everyone, the problem is not occasionally doing that. The problem is poor sleep and not getting your sleep sorted out. So if you're an insomniac or certainly if you've got sleep apnea, which is where you're keeping your partner awake or your neighbours are complaining about your snoring and you're waking feeling very unrefreshed, a man I saw the other day, he said he fell asleep at the traffic lights for just a micro-sleep. So or you fall asleep in meetings or you sit down to watch your favourite show on television or even worse, you sit down to listen to Healthy Living on a Sunday night, 6 to 9, that is, shameless plug, um, <laughs> that you that that you get, fall asleep in the first five minutes, which no one could ever do, of course. No, not with your voice, of course not. No, of course not. Mm. So, so no, no, please. And uh, so anyhow... <laughs> If you have sleep apnea, you must go to your GP and get that assessed because we do have very effective treatments and sleep apnea is associated with cardiovascular disease, hypertension, sudden death during the night when you stop breathing. So a whole lot of things, sleep apnea can be very serious. Do you think that sleep apnea can be linked to psychological disorders like anxiety or you know that kind of thing? Or do you think it's I more think, of a medical no, thing? No, I, th- I think it's more of a medical thing. I, 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 think I knew really, you'd say that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's more of a medical thing. I'm going to disagree but, with you. I'm just well, going to put sure, it out there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we, we we all have the right. I think to anxiety can other. keep people awake chronically. Yeah, but that's not sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is where you st- there's two types: obstructive and central. Yeah, obstructive where the airway closes off at night time when you're in a deep sleep, and so you never re- really get into deep sleep. So it completely disrupts your sleep. Anxiety mm. can't do that. What about the other type of sleep apnea? Central, Central sleep apnea is a brainstem disorder. So that that's a totally different issue whatsoever. Okay. May Can we just call it sleep deprivation anxiety. rather than sleep apnea then? Well, the sleep Psychologically a, induced. Yeah, that's a different issue. Different okay. issue. But All right. still, but it's if present. you've got sleep problems, please get them sorted out. Yeah, absolutely. It is. I always say that the number one... I, I think sleep is the most underrated thing we can do for our health and well-being. I don't think we talk about it enough. I don't think we prioritize it enough. And I don't know that people really know what it's like to experience weeks on end of incredible sleep and how that can impact every part of your life. And I think if we practice some of the sleep hygiene tips that you know we spoke about and that are out there, it can have such a significant difference and a, and a huge benefit to our lives. Yep, totally agree. Well, Ross, before we wrap up today's episode, we're going to finish with our member question of the week, which is from Tracy. Tracy asks, I'm 55 years old and I've been diagnosed with osteopenia and I don't want it to progress to osteoporosis. Any tips on what I could do to avoid this? Sure. But before I get onto the tips, I just want to make the point that I make all the time. Every modern significant disease is genetic heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, osteoporosis, diabetes. It's all genetic, as is our response to trauma, our response to infection. So the reason why Tracy's having a degree of osteopenia, which is the precursor thing, it's a bit like pre-diabetes to diabetes, osteopenia is pre-osteoporosis. The reason she has that is is obviously there's a, a strong genetic component, but your genes loads the gun, then your environment pulls the trigger. And so what are, what are the factors then, the, the, the lifestyle factors that can make osteopenia worse? And this is really interesting. People who are excessively thin 
who have the genetic predisposition to osteoporosis tend to have more osteopenia or osteoporosis than people who are carrying extra weight. Now, I'm not in any way endorsing anyone putting on that degree of weight to stop osteoporosis because it's not going to work. Uh, but it's just a genetic thing. And when you hit 50 and the hormones go south, that's when you start to see things like osteopenia or osteoporosis. So what can you do before you have to go on to the, the medical therapies, which are quite effective, the medical therapies for osteoporosis, but they also have a lot of side effects. So the best treatment of osteopenia, osteoporosis, is a thing called exercise. Now, I know Gina and I sound like broken records, but two-thirds cardio, a third resistance training, three to five hours a week is the best preventative treatment for osteoporosis. There is no doubt about that. Number two, oral calcium tablets do absolutely nothing to prevent osteoporosis or bone fracture. So a meta-analysis of 100 trials put together asked two questions. Do oral calcium tablets prevent osteoporosis or treat osteoporosis and do they prevent bone fracture? The answer to both, no. So do not take oral calcium because a big meta-analysis out of New Zealand showed that people who take oral calcium have much stronger calcification in their arteries and a 30% increased risk for heart attack. So I do not use oral calcium. You should get your calcium from, from organic sources in your diet. You should not get them from pills. Number three, do not drink any form of soft drinks, whether it is sugar-sweetened drinks or whether it's artificially sweetened drinks, because in these soft drinks is a thing called phosphoric acid, which some of the clever food companies call food acid. So it sounds like it's good for you. And what this phosphoric acid do does is rip the calcium out of your bones. So keep away from that. But the things that the, the natural things that actually do work are vitamin K2, the dose is 180 micrograms a day, not what you get in a spray that's got K2D3 because there's only 45 mics in the spray. So you've got to take the little capsule, 180 micrograms a day, which takes calcium out of your arteries, puts it back in your bones. So you get two bangs for your buck when you take vitamin K2. And also vitamin D, a 1,000 units, two of those a day. I think everyone should be doing that over a certain age because a big study last year came out 25,000 people over five years had a 25% reduction in autoimmune disease as one example, but also keeping your vitamin D levels around 100 reduces your risk for osteoporosis as well. So they're my tips. That's what helps. Have a DEXA scan in a couple of years to see that your bones are still staying healthy or maybe improved a bit. And if it's getting worse, you need to see an endocrinologist and have a talk with them about the medical therapies for osteoporosis. That was like a one-on-one -on -one consult. I think Tracy is going to be absolutely thrilled with that response. Thank you so much, Ross. It was so informative Pleasure. and so comprehensive. So thank you. That brings us to the end of this week's episode on Eat, Live and Move with Miyagi. Talking about all things sleep. We covered so much juicy detail about sleep today. So we hope you feel inspired to make some changes in your life to improve your quality and quantity of sleep. Now, whatever platform you're listening to today, please remember to subscribe so that you can always hear from us whenever we drop a new episode. That's all from us. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for more conversations with me, Dr. Gina Cleo, and my co-host, Dr. Ross Hawker. Bye. Bye. Bye.